So just by way of introduction, um, Michaelmas, or, or Michaelmas, as people sometimes call it, or the Feast of Michael and All Angels, is celebrated every year, and it's normally the 29th of September, and it falls on the equinox, the days associated with the beginning of autumn and the shortening of days. And it used to be said that harvest, particularly in England this is, that harvest used to have to be completed by Michaelmas, almost like the marking of the end of the productive season and a beginning of a new cycle of farming. And that's how it came uh, to be the time for the beginning of legal and university terms. And in England, the, the, or, this full term is called the Michaelmas term. Is it called that over here at all? No. Anyway, the, the university term is called the Michaelmas term. And St. Michael is one of the principal angelic warriors, protector against the dark of the night and the archangel who fought Satan and his evil angels. As Michaelmas is the time of darker nights and colder days, it is the edge of winter. And the celebration of Michaelmas is associated with the encouraging protection during the darker winter months. It was believed that negative forces were stronger in darkness. And so families would require stronger defenses during the later months in the year. Now, the custom of celebrating Michaelmas of the last day of harvest in England was broken by Henry VIII, who broke many things, when he split from the Catholic Church. And instead of Michaelmas, he decided it was going to be called Harvest Festival. And that's why we have Harvest Festival now rather than Michaelmas. And in British folklore, just to give you a bit of English folklore, on Michaelmas Day, the 10th of October, it is the last day when blackberries are supposed to be picked. And it is said that on this day, when Lucifer was expelled from heaven, he fell from the skies straight onto a blackberry bush. He he then cursed the fruit and scorched them with his fiery breath and spat and stamped on them. And after that day, they were unfit for human consumption. So as the Irish proverb goes, on Michaelmas Day, the devil puts his foot on blackberries. Fine, don't worry. You can do that all right. There we are. There we are. Good. Just speak out, CB. This is a reading from Revelation. The woman and the dragon. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven an enormous red dragon with seven hens and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But the dragon was not strong enough and lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leaves the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, 
Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, for the devil has been hurled down. Thank you, CB. So you've got that reading from Revelation about St. Michael and the dragon. And there's a whole history of writing about dragons and about people fighting dragons. Um, and it brings the legend of George and the dragon uh, to mind. And George is the patron saint of England. And the George and the dragon describes the saint taming and slaying the dra- a dragon, which, like that thing in Revelation, the dragon demanded human sacrifice. And the narrative of people fighting dragons actually is pre-Christian. And it's particularly attributed to St. Theodore in the 9th century and 10th century. And then it was transferred, the whole idea of fighting dragons, to St. George in the 11th century. And the earliest narrative record of St. George slaying the dragon is found in a Georgian text of the 11th century. And it was popularized really on the 13th century. And it became a favorite literary and pictorial subject in the late Middle Ages and in the Renaissance. And it's really become an integral part of the Christian tradition relating to St. George and St. Michael all the way through. So I think it'd be a good idea to hear the story of George and the dragon. St. George traveled for many months, by land and sea, until he came to Libya, where he met a poor hermit, who told him that everyone in that land was in great distress, for a dragon had long ravaged the country. Every day, said the old man, he demands the sacrifice of a beautiful maiden, and now all the young girls have been killed. The king's daughter alone remains, and unless we can find a knight who will slay the dragon, she too will be sacrificed tomorrow. The king of Egypt will give his daughter in marriage to the champion who overcomes the terrible monster. When St. George heard the story, he was determined to try and save the princess. So he rested the night in the hermit's hut. And at daybreak, he got up and he set out to the valley where the dragon lived. When he drew near, he saw a little procession with the princess headed by a beautiful girl dressed in Arabian suit. The princess Sabra was being led by her attendant to the place of death. The knight spurred his horse on and overtook the ladies. He comforted them with brave words and persuaded the princess to return to the palace. Then he entered the valley. As soon as the dragon saw him, it rushed from the cave roaring louder than thunder. Its head was immense and its tail 50 feet long. But St. George was not afraid. He struck the monster with his spear, hoping he would wound it. The dragon scale was so hard that the spear broke into a thousand pieces and St. George fell off his horse. Fortunately, he rolled under an enchanted orange tree 
against which poison could not prevail, so that the venomous dragon was unable to hurt him, although it roared and roared. Within a few minutes, he'd recovered his strength and was able to fight again. He smote the beast with his sword, but the dragon poured poison on him and his armor split in two. Once more, he refreshed himself from the orange tree and then with his sword in his hand, he rushed out and pierced it under its wing where there were no scales. So it fell dead and the princess rushed forward and claimed her man. There we are, claim your man. Ladies and gentlemen, please, the Aspen Chapel players. Please take a bow. So we are asking your players take a bow. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's great. That's great. Now we're going to let the children go now, as they say. Uh, so if you'd like to take your dragons after all the children, are going to, this is Heather, by the way, and Heather's been looking after our children all the way through the summer. We're so grateful, Heather, with all the work that you've been doing downstairs. This is Heather. Thank you so much. So children, if you'd like to go downstairs, that's fantastic. There'll be other activities going. Going along there. Right, I'm going to be testing you on that now. Okay. This is from Psalm 65. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain. For sore you, you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty, and your parts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks, and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. Thank you. So there's really quite a lot to link up in these stories. There's the story of St. Michael and the dragon from Revelation. There's George and the dragon. There's the harvest. And they all sort of come together and throughout history, they've been mingled and mixed. You can see how the two dragon stories linked together with the idea of human sacrifice and really the, the need to, to slay the dragon to free humanity. And the link with the harvest uh, is that there was always a fear of fire around the time of harvest when the crops were all full. And the worst thing that could happen is that fire could come and take the crops because it meant that, you know, that they'd all be starving after that. And dragons were seen as the bringers of fire. So the legends were, were put into one, and that's why the dragon is so, uh, uh, came along at the time of harvest. So at the time of harvest, when everything is safely gathered in, we, we tell stories to remind ourselves of the bravery that averted disaster, both to humanity and the crops. Here at the chapel, you know, I think we think it's important to mark these seasons um, which is why we have these rituals. And the reason is, is it's especially easy to get separated from them, uh, from the seasons in our modern world. We have a, we'll have an Advent, special Advent winter service uh, on Advent Sunday, uh, where we have a, a, a circle and you can walk the circle in the evening, the winter garden. 
And then we have a, um, a service at spring. We have a maypole up. And we have a, the celebrations of these seasons. Because, you know, we can forget, you know, here in Aspen, we can get strawberries all year round in the grocery store. And, you know, some children are unaware of where milk comes from. Seriously. They don't know where milk comes from. And they certainly don't know the process by which the hamburger gets onto their plate. And if they knew, they'd be horrified. (laughs) And here we see the seasons quite easily. You know, the colours of the fall make it so obvious. The snow at winter. The green shoots of spring. And the heat of the summer. But beyond that, it's only when we come back from you know, a country abroad where there is less food, where food is scarce and very reliant on crops and weather, do we get jolted into the abundance in our stores? I don't know if you've come back, any of you from Africa or South America or some place where there's not much, and you walk into a grocery store and you just cannot believe there are 58 different types of cereal just all the way down one, you know, 15 types of bread. I mean, it's just extraordinary the abundance that that we experience that when we're here. So it's good for us to have a time of harvest thanksgiving or Michaelmas so we can acknowledge what goes into it all. The huge effort that goes into getting food on our plates both here and around the world. And we only really acknowledge how important it is when there's scarcity you know, when there's a disaster or an impending disaster and everybody rushes out to the shops and everything gets bought up as we panic by everything and suddenly we realise how dependent we are on those systems. But we're here to remind ourselves where we are in the process, that there has been a beautiful, bountiful harvest for us all and that we are letting go of the summer and we're preparing to store all that we have for the dying of the light. And that's where, in a sense, the dragons come in. Because it's after the work has been done, after the joy of the festivals here in Aspen, after the visitors have gone, that we're left on our own. And we have to face those dragons and demons in our own lives. And we have to slay them for ourselves. That story in Revelation has a gift of new birth. The dragon is waiting for the maiden to give birth. And so there's the image of new birth about to be destroyed by the dragon that is lying in wait for it. And, you know, we have our own dragons too. Those thoughts and feelings that steal away our joy. And even in a place like this, we can still have those dragons that go around in our minds, burning the life out of our lives. And it's particularly relevant in areas like our own. Um, Michael Eisenhart showed me an article in the National Geographic, uh, very recently called, Why Ski Towns Are Seeing More Suicides. Why Ski Towns Are Seeing More Suicides. You know, it said, It says in the article, these idyllic locales breed a kind of malaise. And in the article, Kelly McMillan says, people come here. They try to set up a life and it's probably not what they expected, she says. They're isolated from their families, their support systems. And there's a huge financial crisis that creates stress on the people 
with seasonal work, with housing shortages, with the price of rentals, and just the cost of living in general. On top of that, due to the transient nature of these resort communities, their social makeup is often more tenuous. Residents lack intergenerational relationships and deep social attachments, which are protective against suicide. And that means that when faced with issues, people have less support. And it's interesting, that the article goes on to say that the way to counter this is by creating and forming community. It's the creation and forming of communities that allows people to create these relationships, which is really why what we're doing here is so important. We are creating a community here that enables us to deal with some of the dragons and demons. You know, we, over the years, you know, with Greg and myself, we've, and all the people in the chapel, we've tried to create a sense of community with support structures that people can use when they're in trouble. It's so important to go and talk to people in reception, you know, to get to know people. It's not just a place to come, it's, it's, it's a place where you can get to know people and create those structures. Very rarely do people meet every week here. You know, every week we come together. We have a community here of about 400, I'd say, 450. And about 100 of us meet every Sunday. And, you know, we all help when we can. You know, I'm available to talk to if you've got an issue. Uh, you know, you can just knock on my door, give me a ring, and, and make an appointment to see me if there is something going on. And we have a pastoral support team of 65 people. That's 65 people who've said... I will help if someone's in trouble. I will give a meal. I will provide transport. I will go and visit someone in hospital. Um, and it's amazing, you know, the way that we can use those things. You know, we have had people, you know, who have been in hospital. And, you know, I can make calls and people go around and they visit and they pick up and they deliver. And we have created those support numbers. It's quite a big number, I think, 65. We've helped people with counselling, bringing food, transport, with moving, you know, we are a community that aims to look after itself. We're a community that aims to provide a welcome and a, a home for people that want to feel that multi-generational support. So many of us have to suffer in silence. And it's not until we begin communicating with each other that the barriers begin to come down and help and healing can take place. I think it's so interesting that in the story of George and the dragon, the peasant communicated the problem and St. George was able to do something about it. There was a communication that went on and, uh, and that someone asked for help. Um, and some of you may have seen um, the Godfrey family film uh, at the festival. You know, the film is called Three Days and Two Nights about Andy and Mark surviving that plane crash. And by the way, I know that that film is sold out uh, both here and in Carbondale, and people weren't able to see it. So I've asked Andy, and the film is going to be absolutely finished uh, in the next couple of months, and we're going to show it here in the chapel. We're going to project it onto a big uh, um, screen here in the chapel. So if you have missed it, we are going to be, be showing that film uh, here in the chapel. But what struck me was the healing process that came out of just telling that story, the difference that the two brothers, both Andy and Mark, you know, the difference to them that the film made... Oh, Andy's here. I didn't see Andy, yeah. The difference that the film made 
uh, to both Andy and Mark and actually be, be able to tell the story and the healing uh, as the film progressed. And they were able to talk about something that had been suppressed for over 30 years. You know, we slay our dragons by bringing them out into the open. And I love it. Just did you notice in the dragon story, the dragon rushed out of the cave. The dragon was actually in a cave. And I think that really sums up the fact we keep our dragons inside us, in those caves. So we have to be willing to have our dragons come out and be slain so that they don't destroy our lives, so that they don't demand the human sacrifice. You can see the links, how they go. There's the demand of that human sacrifice, uh, and it's really just too hard. And what a parallel that is for, you know, farming communities of old. You know, we're gathered here at Harvest Festival just like a farming community of old. We're giving thanks for what we've received in terms of the harvest. We're talking about the dangers of demons and dragons. We're making ourselves available to each other to help where we can. And let us hold our community here as being something sacred, something that protects us, something that gives us the ability to withstand problems and difficulties. Here at this time of harvest, we give thanks for what we've received. We remind ourselves that problems can be dealt with and we offer ourselves to one another. So let's just maybe closing our eyes just uh, in prayer. Just go into ourselves. Let's just become aware of what we'd consider our own dragons to be. Maybe we're familiar with them. Maybe we've already started to slay them or deal with them. Maybe we know where they are and we're aware of them. But maybe there are some that we're not so in control of. Just let's name those. Thinking of our own lives, where the danger comes from, where our difficulty comes from. We think of hurts, worries, memories, times that come round with painful memories. We think of potential harm. Maybe let's consider what, what we could do about those things. Either in our behavior or by telling somebody about it. Just acknowledging it for the first time is important. Acknowledging that we might be in trouble. That we might be able to keep it at bay now, but will our armor shatter? And what happens when we are defenseless? 
just looking at those dragons, let's think of maybe who we might be able to communicate with. What action might we be able to take? And are we up for doing that? Particularly as we think coming into these colder months, less time out, more time on our own, more time able just to do what we want, might not be the healthiest. Let's take our attention off ourselves and just think of those around us that we know might be in trouble. People that we know are suffering. Maybe people that we know are in difficulty, but we haven't wanted to broach the subject with them. Just because it might be too painful either for us or for them. people that we know we don't want to wait till it's too late. Maybe maybe we can consider maybe saying something now. I always knew that 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 they were in trouble, but I never said anything. I knew something was wrong. Maybe considering how we might be able to Even just invite them round, see what happens. How we can be compassionate without thrusting their face in it. Maybe they'll just say to you what the problem is. When we think of the dragons in our own, in our community, in our society, things that we fear, situations. In social life, in politics. What are we ignoring? Where are we not acting? What are we not listening to? Should we be involved? Or do we have our head in the sand? Our ability to tell the truth, to speak to each other, to put it into art, poetry, music, painting, to engage with these subjects and issues. Let's just think about doing that. And more directly, we think about those that we don't know. We pray for those that we don't know that are in trouble and difficulty, particularly here in the valley. People suffering quietly, no one to talk to. We pray for them. Pray for those people in prisons, in hospitals. Particularly pray for all those people suffering in Indonesia, unspeakable troubles for families through the tsunami and the earthquake. People all over the world dealing with 
weather-related issues and war-related issues. We're coming up to the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War. And we think of the stupidity of war. Pray for all those involved in war. Oppression, violence. Pray that our world may become a more peaceful and loving place and that dragons may be brought out of their their caves and slain. And we pray for those in our own community that are suffering. We know particularly, we pray at this time for Father Thomas Keating, who is weak at the moment. Father Joseph Boyle. Pray for Martha Martin, Sophie Layton, Kristen Mayer, Michael Riley, family of Kathy Longford, and the family of Bill Forrest. Pray all those that we know are suffering in any way. Pray your healing power may be upon them, that the Michael and the angels and the senses of light may enter into their lives and give them comfort. We pray this in Jesus' name.